Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the recently retired David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoy creating it. Second, a lot of you ask, why the heck are we doing this? And it's certainly not to make money. Uh, but Bailey and I both like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing, how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing, and overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons we've each learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people we've met recently along the way, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Well, Mike, this week I had an interview with Hanson Grant. He was recommended to me by a former faculty colleague uh, from RPI uh, who is now at Babson College, and... uh, he said, hey, you should uh, talk to Hanson Grant for your uh, podcast. So uh, we made that connection, and uh, I thought it was a great conversation. Uh, Hanson clearly is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, and uh, his family has a history of that. So I think it's one of these, uh, he was born with the entrepreneurship gene turned on uh, from that perspective, and then he got a great kind of nurture along the way, I think, from uh, his parents and uh, his grandfather as well. So um, what what did you think about this one, Mike? I thought this was great, Bela. I mean, A, the product is cool. Um, I actually recommended the product to a colleague here who was creating some space, and I'll actually be in a meeting tomorrow writing on his product, which is kind of neat. Um, B, yeah, like you said, what a interesting story, and uh, somebody who has a ton of wisdom, right? I think beyond his years, which is always, for me, really interesting and cool uh, to, to listen to. So yeah, I think there's a lot to, to latch onto with this and I'm looking forward to, to hearing it. Yeah. I think there's uh, so much stuff here. You and I are going to have a hard time uh, summarizing it at the end. So, uh, folks listen up. It's a really good one and, uh, let's get right into the interview. Welcome folks. Today I'm here with Hanson Grant from thinkboard.com. He's a young entrepreneur who has really a long history of entrepreneurship in his family and a real interesting story on how he built his company and his product. So I think we're going to have a great interview. And uh, so welcome to the show, Hanson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So tell me a little bit about uh, ThinkBoard, your product and what it is. Yes. So ThinkBoard is a peel and stick whiteboard film that turns any surface into a whiteboard. You just peel it off and can stick it onto a wall, a desk, a table, a classroom desk, a refrigerator, pretty much wherever you want, and turn that surface into a writable surface. So I write on it with the uh, those marker pens? Is that the idea? Exactly. Expo markers, quartzite markers, pretty much any dry erase marker um, writes on very easily and erases just as easily. And I can use this, uh, comes in various different sizes? Yep. We have sizes from 8 by 11 all the way up to 4 feet by 20 feet. Oh, great. And different colors? We have white and we have clear. Uh, We could offer different custom colors or custom logos if if you want. But um, for the most part, the clear blends in with the surface that you put it on. So it kind of 
adds that color aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking I have two granddaughters, ages three and five, and, you know, they like to write on all sorts of flat surfaces like walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you could you could actually designate wall area for this and put one of these on the wall. Yep. Stick, does it stick to, like, painted surface? Yes, yes, it does. And then they could write on it with their uh, dry eraser, uh, dry mark eraser things, and everyone's happy. Exactly. We've seen a lot of parents cover the bottom four feet of a playroom just all around the the whole surface so the kids can go crazy and not get in trouble for that. Oh, nice, nice. And um, so that's sort of the, the, the kids, right? I, I, I get that part. And how about businesses? How do businesses use this? So a lot of businesses will cover, you know, floor to ceiling with their whiteboard. If they're, if they're thinking about doing something that big or just a regular four foot by eight foot, um, what's interesting is the, the product itself is about half or uh, a third the cost of a regular whiteboard, but the same quality. And because we can roll it up and ship it in a tube, it's even cheaper and easier to ship, install, and use. So a lot of businesses are switching to our product when they move to a new space or they're trying to get some more whiteboard space because it you know, ships and installs within you know, minutes instead of oh, hours. Nice. nice. Okay, so I get it. So instead of... Instead of ordering this big four by eight piece of heavy whiteboard that I got to figure out how to attach to the wall, I can get four by eight think board, comes rolled up in a tube, and I unroll it, and it sort of uh, has an adhesive on the back, sticks to the wall, and I'm done. Exactly. Just that, that easy. Oh, wow. Very nice. So where did you get the idea for this? So I was in my dorm room at Babson College um, wanting to create a new business. I had just gotten out of a business with some of my friends. That was for a class project, and we, we loved it. We, we thought, you know, business, consumer products, online, like all of that was just really fun. And we needed a whiteboard to start brainstorming business ideas. So I came to my parents' digital printing office, and I grabbed a few different sheets of vinyl that might work, and I started, you know, marking them with the expo marker to see what would erase just so I could, you know, use it in my room. I found one sheet of material that kind of worked with a lot of expo spray and uh, cut it up and put it on my wall. And uh, that was in September of 2013 uh, during while I was entering my sophomore year of college. It wasn't until March that enough friends came into my room and said, all these ideas you guys thought of, they kind of suck, but, <laughs> but, but this thing that you're writing on, like, where can I get one? And uh, not thinking much of it, I would cut them up and, you know, bring them back for friends and put them on their walls. And they would start brainstorming their ideas and, you know, working on their businesses and whatnot. And then friends of friends said, hey, I saw this in, you know, my buddy Soham's room. Like, where can I buy one? And then I was like, huh, like 20 bucks. Uh, I'll make it for you right now. And then they're like, okay, yeah, sure. So um, it just kind of started on uh, organically. Uh, evolving into that. And then I launched a website and then that saw some early success. And then we launched the Kickstarter and we ended up raising $10,000 on that. Um, And it just kind of continued one step at a time. And I thought it would fizzle out. Like I honestly did not think that this was going to be that company that I was going to be running full-time post-grad. I didn't even think it would make it a year. Um, But it was just very demand-driven from customers that once it got out in the wild, people kept asking for it. So I kept making them. 
Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't your original idea, right? You were just looking for a surface to write on so you could put your ideas on some surface. Exactly. In your dorm room. Exactly. And so you said, I need something to write on because I can't write on the walls because I can't erase it. So you, and we'll get into the family business in a little bit because I think that's an interesting history. And and then all of a sudden people go, hey, this is kind of neat. Can I get one? And get one? So it's interesting that, you know, oftentimes one's original business idea is sort of the crappy one <laughs> in reality and how we sort of end up where we are. Uh, so that's a great story how um, you were able to, number one, recognize it, mm-hmm. right? So let's go back to the early years of, of Hansen when he was a young lad. So uh, – Talk to me a little bit about where you grew up, kind of things you did, and sort of maybe how you got this entrepreneurial bug. Definitely. So I, I grew up in Saratoga. I've lived here most of my entire life, other than California for a few months and uh, Boston for college. And that's Saratoga, New York. Yes, Saratoga Springs, New York. And both of my parents are um, have entrepreneurial tendencies. Um, my mom was very entrepreneurial as a kid herself. And my dad, uh, more so in his 20s and until now. Um, so I grew up with a family business, Grant Graphics, uh, located in Saratoga Springs. And just being surrounded by a lot of the equipment, the machines, what's possible, what can be made, um, and just the, the energy around being self-employed, um, that really caught my interest. And I didn't realize that I had these entrepreneurial tendencies as well until um, until I was at Babson, uh, believe it or not. But I had you know 10, maybe 15 micro businesses throughout middle school and high school selling anything from Dr. Pepper to my friends to gum throughout the middle schools, um, the halls of the middle school, um, sandpaper in my tech class. I had a t-shirt company. I did car decals. Uh, pretty much anything I could do to to make money, uh, and the first one was actually selling water at the Saratoga racetrack, and just kind of getting an idea of what it's like to go to the store, buy the inventory, keep it cool, get a cooler, buy some ice, and then you know market and sell it out front of the Saratoga racetrack and um, play on the oh it's a dollar here, it's four dollars inside, and kind of I came into myself a little bit more about um, sales and just kind of the whole energy around it. So mm-hmm. I, I got very excited about it. And I, I knew I had um, a passion for that, whatever it was. I didn't know of the word entrepreneurship even. Um, I knew what being self-employed was, of course, because of my family, but didn't really know that that could be a career choice because every person in high school and middle school, every survey I filled out, there was never an option for to check off self-employed or entrepreneur. Um, so... Hang on. Wait, I was going to say something else. <laughs> oh, so my parents ended up traveling a lot with us kids growing up, and they would take off two months for you know a few summers in a row. And my goal then became, okay, like how can I recreate this for my kids? How can I recreate this life for myself? Um, what do I need to do in order to be able to take off that amount of time? And that left me with two options, either... Uh, become a teacher, which I was passionate about uh, because I was a ski and snowboard instructor for a few years, or to become self-employed and figure that out and figure out how I wanted to make that work. And fortunately, once I got into Babson, that's that's the route I chose. Yeah. So when you were uh, 
in elementary school or in junior high and high school and selling water and T-shirts and stickers and stuff like that. What was the thing that was driving you there? What was the what was the thing that wanted to make you do that? I don't know. I think it was just exciting. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there there probably was a bit of the the money component that you know, if I had money, then I could buy more candy. Um, but then it just kind of turned into more of a game. Like, is it is it possible to do this? Um, and it just kind of kept growing and it was okay. I'm saving up, you know, to get a go-kart or something for like a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks. And then once I passed that in middle school, I was like, well, I guess I'm saving up for a car now. And then I passed that. And then I'm like, well, I don't even know what I'm saving up for anymore, but you know, college student loans, like that's going to come in handy. So it just kind of continued this like almost scheming way of life of like, Ooh, if I can create this, I do this, then like I can add value. And I, I thought of it as like, um, I was scheming people, but my friends told me that, mm-hmm. but it was actually just, I was going to my you know dad's office and printing out car decals and selling them to people and for a very fair price. And, right. uh, it just didn't seem like it was allowed or real or something was off because mm-hmm. my friends were working down the street at, you know, subway making minimum wage and I was, you know, flipping t-shirts, making a few hundred bucks just from a few emails back and forth. So something just felt like it was wrong, but I didn't realize that that was just kind of running a business and right. uh, adding value and creating value and, you know, transferring, you know, value. And so the, 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 so it sounds like the products that you sold were actually physical, tangible products. So you in an in a very early age you understood margins and inventory mm-hmm. and you know all that kind of stuff that's really important in a business. Definitely. Yeah. I got to learn <clears throat> I mean my my parents wanted me to, you know, keep a uh, you know book of all the expenses and everything to kind of get me a taste of like what accounting is like and then I I hired employees in my high school to kind of go around and be sales reps for for the t-shirt company. Uh, so they they really encouraged me to get a taste of what it was actually like to run all aspects, not just sales and then you know having money to do whatever with. But then they they also broke it down to the next level of okay, like now you've got a checking account, a savings account, a charity account, and an investing account, and they kind of gave me all these like four envelopes to to put money into, and then I would just continuously put money into it. And then at the end of the year, I'd have a few hundred dollars in the charity account. And I'd be like, oh, like, okay, well, I guess this is just part of it. And they they kind of did a fantastic job, actually, uh, helping break down the, um, the all components of business and, you know, being a successful entrepreneur since middle school. Right. Actually, the, the envelope started in fourth grade. Wow. Uh, which is one of my earliest memories of Money And even when it was allowance money, not just my money coming in, it was still like, this is how you divide things up. Like, this is long term, this is short term, this is charity, and this is investing. Very nice. So the um, so after that, you uh, – oh, I know what I want to ask you. Do you have any siblings? I do, yes. Uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister. And are they entrepreneurial as well? They definitely hold the same entrepreneurial tendencies. Um, however – they're not currently operating a business, but I know at some point they will be. Um, yeah. My brother gave a gave a good shot at a startup that he's now converting into a nonprofit. Um, it's very mission driven around 
helping people um, with mental health and mental illness um, in the community. So uh, he's continuing that. It's called Let's Chat About It um, and just giving support to families and people that are going through um, similar stuff that he had to go through himself. Um, and my sister, she's she's definitely got the tendencies. She's in school right now. She doesn't know what she wants to do, but I know at some point she'll be she'll be starting something. Oh, that's great. So um, it sounds to me like the sort of gift that your parents gave you of, number one, exposing you to the entrepreneurial uh, life and then providing some good discipline for you as you're growing up and starting your businesses so it's not just – uh, you know, they weren't subsidizing you in a way that you had a pretend business. Mm-hmm. They they gave you parameters. So you had a real business and you had to have real money in those envelopes at the end of the month to really demonstrate that you were making money. So that's a wonderful, wonderful foundation. So after that, you went off to college. And so talk to us about that a little bit. Yep. So I, I applied to a bunch of schools. <clears throat> I got into Babson, fortunately, but I only got in for January. So I had to figure out what to do for the first semester. And my parents helped me realize that this is a time to learn and have a lot of fun and not just, you know, build something for my resume because I didn't they they also kind of knew that I wouldn't really need to, you know, have the stacked resume like other people might need graduating school. So they encouraged me to move out west and I, I drove my Subaru cross country. Um, and I worked in Yosemite National Park as a maid for two months and then hiked every day. And then I worked at Squaw Valley as a ski instructor every day and got to ski every day. Um, so those two experiences really were eye-opening about like, wow, like, A, life can be very fun. Life is also very difficult living on your own and paying for everything yourself. Um, and this is a really good backup option if things don't turn out well in college However, I have this opportunity that not everybody has, and it kind of opened my eyes of like, wow, like I can really take advantage of going to school and following my dreams and giving it my best shot, because if not, then I'll end up here, which is great, and it was fun, but not really as fulfilling as I thought it would be long-term, you know? So I kind of left with the question of, why do my parents think class is fun and going to school is fun? And I came back with, oh, okay, I understand why, like after taking a six month gap from learning, um, why they feel so excited about like why they'd want to sit in my classes in high school, Mm -hmm. which I never understood. Uh, So I came into Babson with that perspective of, okay, I barely made it in. I'm probably not going to do that well academically, but I'm here to just soak as much up from it as I can. And my parents really encouraged that mindset. So naturally sitting in the front of the class, participating engaging with every professor ended up uh, yielding some pretty high grades. So that wasn't any problem that I thought. I mean, it, it wasn't what I was expecting, but it made sense now that I was thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so I ended up doing very well academically at Babson, connected with a ton of different professors, um, was the co-CEO of that first class project that we were part of. It's called FME, Foundations of Management and Entrepreneurship. And uh, it's a whole year-long program to come up with an idea and apply for funding for the first semester and then run it the second semester. So um, that was the the most um, monumental, I guess, part of the whole experience for me was because I got to run a company with 17 employees. And 
there was the, you know, there's a co-CEO, there's a COO, a CFO, a head of sales, head of marketing, like all these people. And we kind of ran with this idea. And that was when we saw the um, very early success of, wow, like this, this is possible. We got, we were featured on Bostino. We were featured on Bloomberg. Uh, we sold, uh, we sold sunglasses. They were Boston strong, uh, branded sunglasses. And it was right after the Boston marathon bombing. And we ended up selling 900 pairs for 9,000 in revenue, 6,000 in profit. And it was the highest profitable company of our year. And one of the top 10 that's come out of Babson in the past 30. So, Really quickly, and then we of course donated the money back to the um, marathon bombing uh, survivors. So, really quickly, we saw like, wow, like we're pretty good at this, and maybe it's, it comes easy to us, and maybe maybe it doesn't. Maybe we got lucky, but like, let's give it another shot. And that's kind of when um, that's when Thinkboard was born, and continuing throughout that whole approach to Babson that I had initially of. Let me just learn as much as I can, sit in front of the class and engage with the professors. That came in handy when I was running the company because then sophomore year, I connected with my operations professor and said, hey, like, if I'm going to be buying this many markers and this, many, this much inventory, like, how am I going to manage this cash flow and like, kind of work through it? And then I talked to my accounting professor about all of the tax situations and how to um, leverage that <laughs> properly. And, kind of, um, you know, just in, interacting with every professor on their specialty. And that really helped me um, run ThinkBoard in parallel with going to school. Yes, yes. So um, we have a, a bit of a Babson connection. Uh, I taught there for a while uh, in the Fast Track MBA program. And uh, for those listeners who haven't heard of Babson, Babson is located out near Boston in the United States and um, is... Uh, probably for the last 25-plus years, been the number one school uh, when it comes to rankings with respect to entrepreneurship. It's always ranked number one in a, uh, with respect to entrepreneurship. So if you're interested in being an entrepreneur, it is the place to go to. And I remember when I taught there, uh, and based on your experience as well, one of the things that they have really done an excellent job in is they your business that you described as a freshman was a real business. It wasn't a classroom exercise. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a let's write a business plan and we'll present it and we're done. It was a real business. You had to start a real business. You had to buy inventory. You had to sell stuff. And uh, I think that ha- hands-on approach is something that uh, is really, really valuable. Uh, as you learned as a probably a fifth grader <laughs> yes. when you were selling T-shirts, right? Yes. And, and that whole approach kind of... Uh, you, you were fortunate enough to go to a college where they provided that type of approach as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. So that's great. And so when did you graduate? 2016. Okay. And uh, so now talk about ThinkBoard. You started that, I think you said, as a sophomore? Yes. And uh, talk about that progression, kind of where it went from in, during your sophomore year and how it kind of grow, grew. Definitely. So it's been going for about five years now. So to keep the short, <laughs> the story uh, – a little short, um, we, we created the product for ourselves and then it kind of started spreading around campus a little bit. We launched the website that did well. And then we launched the Kickstarter and we really didn't think that I just didn't think it was going to be like a crazy successful, whatever. And I knew it wasn't going to be a hundred thousand, $200,000 Kickstarter, but, 
um, I kind of used it as market validation. And my parents were, you know, in favor of me wanting to follow entrepreneurship, but also um, recognizing that Babson's a good school and that I could probably get a really good job or a really good internship with that degree. So my dad, who um, didn't end up graduating school and didn't really have that opportunity, was really pushing me down the path of, like, at least give it a shot. So go get an internship. And I said, well, hang on. Like, I got this project. Like, I think it could be pretty big. Let me run this Kickstarter. And if it's successful, then I'm going to continue it. And if it's not, then I'll go get an internship next summer. Yeah. And he said, okay, that's, that sounds fair. So, um, of course, you know, now that I'm here talking, the Kickstarter was successful. We raised $10,000 in 30 days. And everybody was kind of blown away. Like, wow, I really didn't think that was going to happen. And I didn't raise it by asking people to give me money. I raised it by asking people to share it with their friends and family and just continuously sharing it on Facebook. And we got about 700 shares on Facebook. And through that, we ended up raising the money. And it was almost entirely from people I didn't know, which meant a lot to me because that means, okay, people actually want this product. It's right. not just them you know, giving me money. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about the Kickstarter experience? Because maybe not all our listeners are familiar with that, sort of how it works and sort of the, the premise behind it. Definitely. So Kickstarter is a crowdfunding platform where you launch your idea and a prototype of the product um, on the platform and you have a, a set number of days to get it funded. Um, sometimes it's 30 days, sometimes it's 60 days. But essentially you say we need you know $10,000 to buy the machine, to do the initial inventory run, to buy the packaging all of this stuff, and if you guys all support us today, then in you know two months, three months, whenever we can produce this thing, um, you are going to get some of our product. So as a, as a, a subscriber to uh, Kickstarter, mm -hmm. um, I'm actually buying your product. So if I, if I go to your Kickstarter page, mm -hmm. when, I, when I write a, a check or put in my $30, $40, it's actually in return. I'm not, I'm not buying equity. I'm not buying shares of your company. Exactly. I'm buying a promise, or you're <laughs> giving me a promise, uh, that you will ship me a product in 60 days or something. Yes, and sometimes it doesn't happen, but uh, most of the time it, it does. So, um, yes, yeah, so that, fortunately, uh, about 300 people believed in us and uh, wanted to see it become successful. And once it... once we funded and fulfilled, I thought, okay, like maybe, you know, a few of these people are going to want to order again and it's not going to be like that crazy amount of orders again. So I hired my sister who was 14 at the time to come in after high school and ship out an order here and there kind of thing. Cause we had some inventory built up and I was studying abroad and I almost canceled studying abroad because this kind of took off, but I also felt like she'd be able to handle it and I could manage it remotely and stuff like that. And I'd always dreamt of, you know, being able to run a company uh, from another country. And fortunately, and unfortunately, <laughs> uh, that was not the case. Uh, no, more fortunately, uh, Babson's marketing team ended up, you know, seeing our Kickstarter and then a news channel reached out to them saying, hey, do you have any entrepreneurs we could feature in our upcoming segment? Um, and they said, sure, you know, check out Thinkboard. So they reached out to me. We filmed. I thought it was like a local channel, like Wellesley or, you know, kind of like Saratoga's local channel, like yeah. nothing too big. But it turned out to be ABC. 
And it was just, you know, it was called WCVB, the Chronicle. And I had no idea what that was, but apparently that was, you know, primetime ABC Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Boston. And that featured two weeks after I got to China. And uh, I ended up calling my sister and told her that we had the same amount of orders we just had for the Kickstarter. But now they're all website orders and they're probably expecting this within two to three days. And uh, she quit immediately. <laughs> uh, and then my, my brother and mom fortunately stepped in for about a month or two, helping fulfill orders pretty much every day uh, until we got an intern to come in and cover. And um, we got another wave of orders come in. And it was just this, it was not what I was expecting. But what was really cool is it set the foundation of like, okay, like I'm not always going to be there. I'm going to need to set up a system where things can happen without my presence. And I was catching the travel bug and I was like, I, I do not want to go back to just shipping products out of my dorm room every day. Uh, so that kind of forced us to set up more systems around automation and allowing that to happen. Um, so fast forwarding, you know, many years and I'll, I'll jump back to the story. Now, all of our shipments happen out of one factory out in Syracuse. Our accounting is done by a third party company in Boston. Our marketing is done by a third party company out in Austin, Texas. Um, our customer service is handled by my sister. She got rehired <laughs> and, uh, and her friends. So they handle all of our customer service. And um, my partner slash best friend handles a lot of the inventory management and operations, uh, which leads me to, you know, relationships and working with schools and stuff and all the stuff that I really enjoy. Uh, so we've kind of built this whole company now around the whole outsource as much as possible, but also keep it close and work closely with these partners. And uh, we view everybody as teammates. Um, even actually, we've, we've got social media people. We've got partners out in the UK handling our European business. And everybody kind of feels like a team member. Um, but we've we've wanted to grow in a way that's scalable, that doesn't allow, that doesn't force us to need to get an office and employees because my parents weren't too keen on that um, growing when I was growing up. Um, but anyways, rewinding back to 2014, things accelerated. We ended up um, winning Babson's beta challenge. So we won $20,000 for that. We got accepted into Mass Challenge. So we participated in that four-month accelerator. And through that, um, really rebranded and kind of figured out everything that we were doing. We launched on Amazon. We launched in the Gromit. And we moved to a fulfillment center. And then I was in senior year. Things were going incredibly well. Amazon launched. Everything was beautiful. I was making enough money that it kind of justified not getting a full-time job. Um, and th things were beautiful. And then, unfortunately, we had a lot of problems with, well, our, 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 our product defect rate was maybe around, you know, 3 to 5%, which on a website is totally fine because then, you know, one out of 20 customers, we just ship a new one to and they're, they're fine. Uh, on Amazon, however, when you're selling, you know, 500 a month, that's a couple bad reviews and they're definitely going to leave bad reviews because people think if you leave a bad review, then they're going to get their money back or something, but it's not, that's not how it works. Um, but unfortunately of 500 shipments, maybe only one person might leave a five-star review um, because people just don't review these days. So like currently we're selling, you know, a few thousand a month and we get maybe five or 10 reviews per month. Um, so that's just how unfortunately it works. And we didn't realize that back then. So we shipped out our original version of the product and we had 
some defects and the reviews came in and we went from a four and a half star product, one of the best sellers on Amazon's startup program to becoming a two and a half star product where we were um, no longer selling like any product each month. So now the company is losing money every month. Our website sales are dipping because people are fact checking us on Amazon. And now I walk across stage for graduation while the company is now losing money month over month. Um, so that was the, the biggest challenge that we faced as a company, but we realized Amazon's a beautiful platform. If we can make a product that is easier to install, will stick every time is going to be much better to erase Then we can kind of, uh, revitalize the company a little bit. And that's exactly what we did. We spent six months, you know, researching and working on that. And fortunately we had just won another $25,000 at a startup competition and that kind of held us over for the entire summer while we revamped the product and relaunched on Amazon that fall. And since the fall of 2016, things have just been kind of in the upward trajectory of sales and product and quality and automation. So things have kind of been smooth since then without any major hiccups. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, and now today, currently we've got, like I said, like 10 different partners only me and Ken full-time and the company kind of just is running and growing on its own. We're selling in about 15 different countries. Um, Amazon and our website are our main two channels and we're not selling retail at all in the U S but we've got, we're in stores internationally and, uh, things have been doubling, uh, year over year. So every year we've, we've doubled in sales, which has been pretty incredible. Wow. Wow. So this, uh, one of the wonderful things about, the digital world is uh, the news about your product, good mm-hmm. news, can <laughs> propagate quickly. And also people who are not satisfied are almost always vocal. Yes. People who are very happy, just a small percentage of them are vocal. Uh-huh. Right. So so it's interesting how you, you talked about this notion that whatever the defect rate is or percentage of unhappy customers... 20 years ago, that may have been fine because those small percentage of folks didn't have a platform to sort of broadcast that on. Yeah. Well, today they have a platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you really have to be conscious of that uh, as a business these days. And it sounds like you guys went through that uh, challenge and uh, rose to it quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah. So now now we tried to get that down to you know 0.5%, like as, as low as possible and try to create the absolute best product and... Anybody that uses our product says, you know, it's fantastic. Like, why are you still trying to figure out how to improve it? We're like, well, like, we still have some customers that complain about, like, this one thing. Like, the erasability sometimes on, like, one version of the product just isn't perfect. So um, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to improve the adhesion, the quality of the erasing, how easy it is to install, the packaging, all of that stuff. Um, so it's, it's actually, it was a blessing because it wasn't that bad of a problem back then financially. I mean, in relative to where we are now, back then it was, it was, you know, catastrophic, (laughs) but, um, but now it kind of just set the, the value of our company around, you know, excellent customer experience, excellent customer service. Um, and then having all of our, I mean, just like Tesla, all of the marketing dollars that we could spend go into the product because we want the product to speak for itself. And we'd rather grow organically with, without Facebook ads and you know VC money and all of that just to juice it artificially. 
Um, we'd rather have the product speak for itself and have our customers be our marketing team. Right, right. So speaking of VCs, let's talk a little bit about funding. It sounds like uh, you used Kickstarter uh, mm -hmm. for some, and then uh, you won, you know, or you won some competitions or got some grants. Have you had any other forms of investment from private investors or VCs or anything? Nope. So everything's been fully bootstrapped. Um, we got ten thousand from Kickstarter, and then which is kind of just pre sold product, sales. Right? Yes. Yeah, so, so not quite funding, uh, but the initial kickstart we needed. Um, and then we won twenty thousand at Babson, twenty five thousand at the University of Georgia, and then another thousand through Entrepreneurs Organization. So forty six thousand dollars in total um, of cash grants, which was beautiful. Um, and then yes, ten thousand on the initial Kickstarter, and then we raised another. Uh, 200,000 on our last Kickstarter. So we had a little bit more of a viral uh, Kickstarter last time because we partnered with a company called Rocketbook who makes uh, scannable, erasable notebooks. So we were able to make a scannable, erasable ThinkBoard uh, to kind of pair into their product line. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as you, as you think about ThinkBoard, uh, what do you, how do you see the next few years lay out for you guys? So I think there's a lot of opportunity with the scanning version that we just created with Rocketbook. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in hospitals. Can you explain what the scanning yes, version yes, means? Yes, of course. So essentially, um, you download the Rocketbook app, and then you hover your phone over the product, and there's a little QR code and a border, and it recognizes it. And it allows you to scan in your notes or your drawings, up to Google Drive, OneDrive, OneNote, Evernote, um, Slack, email, Trello, pretty much any cloud service you use. And it creates a JPEG or PDF, and it creates a um, searchable version of it as well. So you can type in, you know, if you're writing about avocados, you could just type in avocados to your Google Drive or to your Rocketbook app or wherever, and it'll pull up that PDF and be able to read all your handwriting as well. So just so I understand this, I have my ThinkBoard. I write a bunch of notes on it. Mm -hmm. I can take out my phone and my Rocketbook app, mm -hmm. take a picture of it, and somehow magically it will go up into my Google Drive. Yes. And I can search that because it recognizes the words that I exactly. scribbled on the uh, ThinkBoard. Yes. So you could send it to multiple locations at yeah. once. Um, and it just kind of creates a, a much easier system for file management. If sure. you're a teacher and you want kids to be able to scan in, their work or if you're taking phone calls at your desk constantly and you've got you know your notes that you take and then you just quickly scan it in and you can title it right. automatically and yeah i've been taking pictures of stuff like that <laughs> for years but then how do i file it how do i search it yeah exactly it, it's a pain in the butt so this sounds like a really nice uh, nice thing yeah so i think there's a lot of opportunity with that because it streamlines file management which could be incredible in um, businesses and hospitals and in schools so we're going to try to see how we can customize that a little bit more to uh, help streamline maybe hospital file management and schools like that. Um, another thing that we're working on is um, we've been resurfacing a lot of old chalkboards and old whiteboards that are no longer working. Um, and it's a very environmentally friendly way to, um, you know, repurpose an old surface that's no longer um, useful. Because you can cover it with your ThinkBoard. Exactly. So a lot of schools, if they have got chalkboards, and maybe asbestos behind them, maybe not, or just chalkboards in general, it's going to cost a few thousand dollars to take that off the wall, recycle it somehow, if that's possible, and then put another board up and then drill it back in. 
versus just having us come in and for a few hundred dollars uh, put our film right over and cut it to size. And it's very easy for us to do or for the end customer to do. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of schools move towards flexible furniture and whiteboard tabletops and all of that. But those tabletops are you know, 500, 600, 700 bucks a piece, but they're only going to last a few years anyways. So might as well just keep your old, really sturdy, strong furniture and put a film over that. Right. And um, yeah, our film might only last a couple of years because kids are damaging it and scratching it and whatever. But it's going to be, you know, an, a tenth the price of the actual new table, and then uh, much easier to to do. Right. So let's talk about uh, international for a second. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned that you were in some foreign markets. So so talk about sort of uh, the challenges in in entering other international markets. So from a the 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 one unexpected challenge that I wasn't prepared for, I guess, was the content strategy. Uh, because you know everything is just digital. It's just digital websites, mainly Amazon and all of that. When we create content in the U.S., we used to just be able to spin it off, you know, new content here, there, whatever. It didn't really matter. It didn't have to be too organized. But now it's like, okay, we're going to create this one video that's going to be text over images, and now we've got to get it translated into ten different languages, and then we've got to have our video editor translate all of those, upload those, and now we've got to spread those out and have them and make sure they use those on all of our Amazon pages and all of our website pages. And that was totally not what I was expecting. I was more expecting we just give product to our partners over there and they'll kind of handle everything. Um, but, but that's not really how it went. Um, but it, it's been interesting. I mean, um, certain we're working with some distributors um, who some build the entire website themselves and they've kind of handled everything themselves in the marketing and they're putting their own marketing dollars into it and they just buy products from us, um, which has been really nice and easy. Other times we've been building the entire website, setting up the whole system, setting up the you know operations behind it. And uh, that's a little bit more challenging, but um, that over in Europe, that's what we're doing because we do want a little bit more control over there because we have so many customers coming from those major EU countries. Um, but it's it's been interesting to work, A, across time zones, B, um, with different customers, because we have live chats on our European website. So, you know, 26 different countries, you know, anybody could just chat us at any time, speaking any language, right, and right. we've got to support them. Right. Interesting. So that's, uh, so we've been going uh, almost 40 minutes here, uh, Hanson. It, is there anything that we haven't talked about that I, I should have asked you about or you'd like to share with us? Um, I, I think one big piece of this, um, well, there, there's a few pieces. Uh, I'm trying to think. There, there, There's two things. One thing is, one of them is the, the travel component to all of this. And um, like I said earlier, my, my family grew up traveling, and I wanted to be able to replicate that. And uh, I, I can confidently say I've done that so far in this life. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of the success we've seen is because we use that as a goal or just kind of freedom, flexibility as the goal. And we try to create, whenever we take on a new project or a new partner or anything, we try to we, we dive deep into it for a few months with the goal of like, okay, at some point this is going to help the entire system of the company grow so then we can step back and either you know, take a week off or take two weeks off or go be in another country. And we've 
like we've now spent um, probably six plus months out of the country over the past few years working remotely and like working on the systems to grow the business. So um, that's been that's been a huge component of what we've done and why we've done it. And it's helped streamline and automate a lot of our systems and not let us take on anything that we don't want to do and kind of offload stuff that that isn't giving us uh, joy every day. Right, right. Well, it forces you, as you said, to structure your business, your enterprise in a certain mm-hmm. way. And, you know, I, I've, I've certainly talked to individuals where their goal is to make sure that their business cannot run without them being there every day. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, that's a strategy. That is a strategy. And you set, and it, and you set things up certain ways. Uh-huh. And then there's other folks who, who say, my goal is to figure out how to make my business run without me being around every day. Yes. And, and they're both viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no judgment here. But, but they, they help in, in guiding you to make decisions differently because yeah. you have to structure things differently. Yeah. Uh, so that's great. That was very, very insightful for you to say that. Definitely. And you said there was two there, things. Yeah, there was yeah. another thing. So on, on that topic of not being there, a lot of the time we spend outside of the office is not necessarily at customers' locations, but it's uh, speaking to schools. So one of our, uh, me and Ken, our passions um, is, you know, teaching entrepreneurship, giving back, helping people like me from middle school and high school kind of see what's possible. And I think our story is very relatable to people in you know public high schools and middle schools, just like I was. And they can see like, wow, like there's this 25 year old that did it and didn't need a crazy amount of money, didn't need a crazy education, you know, kind of just made it happen and didn't even have this grand vision for the next Facebook. It was just uh, solving one problem. And uh, I think if I saw a 20-something-year-old speak at my school, that that probably would have sparked a little bit more excitement. Not that I needed that, but um, so now, you know, a few times a month almost, we're going in and speaking to schools about entrepreneurship and whether it's to college-level students about, like, the story and everything we've done or even to, you know, we were with some fourth graders a few weeks ago kind of breaking down the financials of a lemonade stand and, you know, going to the store and who's going to drive you to the store and the operations and the accounting and, like, here's actually how much money you could make if you sold lemonade, but if you sold another product like lemonades and cookies and paired them together, like, that's much more profitable because X, Y, and Z. So, um we're, we're hoping to spark the next uh, generation, I guess, uh, to to start thinking in a way that's a little bit different than uh, than what they're taught in schools, unfortunately. Uh, so it's it's been cool, and that's uh, that's another reason we we love to do it and work with schools, particularly with ThinkBoard, is because of the education component of it. Yeah, well, that's great. That's a great way to wrap this up, Hanson. Uh, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thanks I for having me. It. You betcha. Cool. Thanks, folks. Wow. That was uh, some conversation I had with Hanson, and uh, I thought it was fabulous. So, Mike, what's uh, one thing that sort of jumped out at you? Well, Bela, I mean, this was somebody who was really born into entrepreneurship. You said it in the intro, and, and it was definitely true. I mean, this four-envelope tool thing that his parents taught him, that's a keeper for everybody. Did you do anything like that with your kids? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> and neither one of them is an But they turned out okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really neat. Um, and then, you know, looking at 
his experience, he, he kind of took the semester off and he went out west and he really built that perspective. Um, and that was another real eye opener. It really actually got me questioning, you know, why don't we tell everybody to, to do something like that? Well, you know, in, in many cultures, uh, there is this tradition that after high school or after you finish your, at least part of your education or some part of your education, uh, you go off on a uh, crusade or a mission uh, and you sort of, you know, maybe travel around the world. You go see some, not, not necessarily all around the world, but you, you go spend some time uh, doing some different types of things. And I think it, uh, it gives you great perspective uh, when you go on those odysseys. And uh, I think uh, that's something that in many ways, uh, we as a culture here in the United States, uh, maybe should do a little more of that. It, I think it would be helpful for folks. Uh, yeah, here here in Germany, they used to have mandatory either military service or public service. And at least the young people that I knew, most of them did the public service out, uh, uh, option. And so they would go and they would move usually to a city away from where they lived and they would do some sort of public service, forestry or an old age uh, home or uh, literacy training or something like that. And, you know, that's not quite as radical as an odyssey, but, you know, I've heard you use the term level setting before, and I think it's a it's a great term for this type of experience. And, and yeah, something that's really... Uh Really a fascinating, I think, concept, and we've seen it a few times uh, in our guests while we've been doing this podcast. Yeah, you know, many of us get get sort of raged and raised in sort of a uh, very protective environment, and uh, where a lot of things are provided to us, and uh, going out and and uh, you know on your own for a brief period of time sort of uh, makes you appreciate and value things that. Uh, uh, and gives you a different perspective uh, than you had probably before you started that. So I thought that was great uh, that he did that. Uh, here, and then it launched him right into the classroom. Sorry, and then it launched right into the classroom, right? He went to school with this really cool attitude, which is like, hey, I might be in a little over my head, or this might be a little reach, but I'm going to go soak this up, and I'm going to have a blast doing it. And he sat in the front row, and he engaged with his professors and engaged with his classmates and, and gave it his best shot. And, hey, lo and behold, what happened? He thought he was going to have crappy grades, and he did great, right? right? right. So, so, Mike, was, was there an experience like that in – in your life? Because I know there, there was in mine, I mean, uh, uh, something that sort of turned the light on for me and, and, and kind of got me motivated. Was there something like that in your life? Um, yeah, it was after college, though. So uh, I'll try to give the really short version. So I kind of just got through my four years of college at University of Michigan as quickly as I could. Um, didn't really interact a whole lot. Um, didn't really get as much as I should have out of the college experience, drank way too much beer, smoked too much marijuana, all these things that 18 year olds do in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1985. Um, and, and I, and I didn't get a lot out of my undergrad experience. Um, I should have, I should have done this, but then after I graduated, I wound up through a strange twist and turn of, I spent a almost two years, um, working in a homeless shelter in Boston. And that was my great leveling, as you said, right? And that was really, I really realized I needed to get my act together and kind of clean things up a bit um, and refocus my priorities and went back, decided I, I wanted to go back to grad school and didn't go right away. But that was when I said, you know, I wasted, kind of I maybe wasted is too strong of a word, but I didn't get as much out of my bachelor's as I should have. Um, and I And I became a better student and a I think a better person in a lot of ways. So that was my leveling experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. You? 
Yeah, uh, my, mine interestingly came uh, uh, way before it was popular to uh, you know take your child to work days that and that exist uh, these days. But uh, there was a couple of occasions where my father uh, took me along, uh, not only to his office at work, but also he 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 was an engineer. I uh, worked for IBM for a long period of time. And um, he worked with several different vendors that built equipment uh, that my dad designed. And uh, a couple of occasions, he took me on these trips to go visit these other companies that were fabricating these pieces of equipment. So this was like you know late high school years, junior, senior type of thing. And I remember coming back from those and spending a day or two uh, at work uh, in his office with him and saying, okay, I now know what I want to do. I, I, I sort of got it because uh, before that point in time, you know, I thought I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a ski bum. There was a whole bunch of things floating around in my brain. But it was that experience where I got ex- that exposure um, helped solidify the, my path. So, yeah, I think uh, I had that experience as well. So, Mike, this, this was it. another one yeah. where Kickstarter kind of popped up again. Um, what were your thoughts there? This is another kind of cool idea. And, you know, he used it as validation to his own father, right? Which I think was fantastic. His dad challenged him and, and he used this again as this validation model. I liked his strategy though. And this was a little bit of a twist. Instead of asking his friends and family to buy the product, which would give him a false uh, read on validation, right? Because people were doing it because they liked him, not necessarily because they liked the product. And he asked them to share the the information and so that others would do the buying. So I think he explicitly told his friends and family, do not buy this, right? But help me put the word out. And that's how you can really give this a boost. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, agreed. You know, the other thing I, th- I found interesting was uh, as, as he was growing quickly and he got onto Amazon and all of a sudden they sold a lot of products and he went from, you know, 4.5 star reviews down to two. And uh, yep. he went, holy crap. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden his sales started to plummet, et cetera. And, uh, you know, much to his credit, they, they dove in and figured out what was going on and uh, understood that, uh, I think, learned a great lesson and understood that, you know, you just can't rest on your laurels all the time and that uh, different customers use products different ways and customers expectations at customer service level and product performance uh is pretty high these days so they recovered from that quite well and i and i thought that was that was pretty good as well yeah two quick points on this is right one he was incredibly responsive and was able to to figure this out quickly um and you know we can have a whole another set of podcast interviews and and mini topics on the love-hate uh, relationship that small businesses have with Amazon. I mean, you'll, it's an incredible platform for small business people, but there's this incredible tension um, on several different dimensions. It's really an interesting one to observe. And if you're in it, I think is, uh, is one of these kind of gray hair inducing experiences. You need them, you love them, but they can drive you crazy kind of thing. Um, so that's an interesting point. But then the second is, yeah, his embrace of customer satisfaction in the current era was just amazing, right? That he talked about, okay, if we have laser focus on improving the product and if we build a culture about around this, then all of a sudden we can grow organically because that fixed the 
product quality issues, that fixed the review issues, that created word of mouth so that he didn't have to spend marketing dollars, um, that he relied on these customer reviews and customer recommendations for growth was was fantastic. Yeah. I thought another interesting uh, uh, part of the conversation was when he started expanding internationally. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, the rules of the game and the requirements to go international are sometimes uh, several uh, degrees more difficult, or I shouldn't say difficult, but they're different than than getting a product launch in your home country. Uh, because in your home country, you sort of know the rules and regs, you sort of know the culture, you know all those things. And now you want to start introducing your product into other countries and uh, you know, your your owner's manual, your instructions have to be done in a different language. Uh, you have sometimes different types of regulations. You have import duties you might have to deal with. Uh, some, com- some countries, uh, you know, selling direct is much more challenging. You have to have a distribution channel, et cetera. So uh, he ran into all those things. And I think there was some good comments he made there and uh, some lessons for all of our listeners there as well. And Bela, this was from a guy that loved to travel. He traveled and he still struggled with going global and still had to adapt and change. So, you know, a nice takeaway here is for the listeners is, is, you know, if you're kind of a U.S., typical U.S. person, what, 50% of Americans, U.S. Americans don't have a passport, right, is, you know, if you want to be a successful small business person, you got to think globally, I think. I think that there's a few types of businesses where it's local, but everything else, either sourcing or manufacturing or this idea of um, outsourcing and, and, and getting your talent overseas, um, the best thing you can do to, to broaden your mind there is to get out and travel. I mean, airfare is at, airfares are at a low, right? Things are cheap to fly all over the world right now. And the best thing you can do is is open yourself up to that. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. And last, my last question. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to make a comment on that. You know, you take a business like he he has, and if you couldn't sell it on Amazon, if you couldn't sell it internationally, in other words, you you were just going to sell it at your own retail outlet in town, there's not much of a business there, right? So you have to have this ability for a business like his to be able to sell it globally. That's the beauty of it, right? We now, a, a, a small business like his, can sell globally. You couldn't do that 30 years ago. Now you can do it. But with that comes this sort of uh, a set of additional requirements and obligations to be able to sell globally uh, effectively and efficiently. Yeah, totally agree. You know, in the last uh, key issue that I I had in, in my head was, you know, you asked him about how he financed um, the business and what his kind of model was. And I thought that was also really interesting. You want to talk a little bit about that and what struck you there? Yeah. So, you know, he used uh, Kickstarter. He got a little bit of money from friends and family. And uh, he basically took the money that he made from selling his product and put it back into the business. And you know, my venture capital buddies never like when I say this, uh, but I always say the best way for a business to raise capital is by selling your product. And uh, he, he sort of did that. And uh, so this ability to bootstrap is, you know, uh, we saw it with, uh, with the real estate guy too. His name escapes me right now. Mm-hmm. One of our previous episodes where he talked about yep. flipping real estate and, you know, yep. he, he, he bought something for five thousand dollars, sold it for eight, and took that three thousand dollars of profit, plus the eight thousand dollars, and put it back into a new property. And 
you know, uh, bought that for eight and sold it for 15. Um, so I think, uh, this is similar to that. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, if I put my venture capital hat on, I look at a business like this, it's pro it's probably not a venture capital type of business that you can't raise venture capital for a business like this. So you got to think about what other ways can I, can I fund my business if you're going to need capital? And uh, there's some businesses where you just need a lot of capital. There's other businesses where really you can get away with very little outside capital, whether it be friends or family. And the best thing for you to do is get your product introduced, get it sold, get feedback from your customers, and, and take that revenue from selling your product and put it into the next generation. And Hansen aligned the market with the product, with his business model, right? By he didn't buy a factory and he didn't buy a bunch of assets, right? He only had two, what, two full time employees, right? Everything else was built to be really lean on capital, which made sense because he wasn't going to go and get VC money. So he could do this bootstrapping, right? Or providing his own funding essentially for this. And then he used these business plan competitions, right? And these accelerator programs really nicely too. And that added that nice little infusion, not a lot of money, right? But enough to, doesn't take much. to help him. Right. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take much. So I thought this was a cool alignment strategy, right? Between his funding sources and his business model yeah. and his market. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I come across a fair number of businesses where when they're starting out, particularly if they have a, a product that needs to be manufactured, uh, right away they want to go to uh, China to get the product made. And, and they really even haven't finished the design of the product yet, but they want to go to China. And, and that's good because they're looking at the piece cost, the per piece cost of, of getting it manufactured. But then they learn about, well... Uh, you have no credit, you have no establishment. So the company that's going to build these wants uh, either COD, cash on delivery, or in many cases, they want you to pay 60, 70, 80% of the cost up front uh, before they're going to manufacture it. So talk about a cash flow challenge, right? You, and, and it's, and it's mm -hmm. a, you know, a three-month, four-month manufacturing cycle because uh, it's going to come over on a boat. Because if it doesn't come over mm -hmm. on a boat, it comes on an airplane, all of a sudden you lost all of that nice margin <laughs> that you made by having it manufactured in China because you're paying FedEx mm -hmm. to fly it over to this country. So uh, having it sourced locally or regionally, if you can, small batches, small quantities, get the, get the product uh, refined, get your design refined, uh, all of those things help reduce the amount of capital you need. And I think Hansen uh, did a great, great job at that. Yeah. Great interview. Yeah. Should we wrap, wrap it, up? it up? Yeah. Sure. All right. Guests, thank you for joining us. We're uh, thrilled that you decided to come back for one more week. And if you're new, welcome. Hope you come back again. Uh, we thought, we hope you find the last hour interesting and thought provoking. Uh, and as usual, we have two small requests. First, if you have any questions about what we've discussed or suggestions about future topics or some potential guests we might want to have on the show, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe or like on your podcast app. Uh, and if you want to be radical and consider writing us a quick review, we'd be ever so appreciative. And if you know other people that might find us interesting, please share us with them. All right, Mike. Good show. Uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Signing off from upstate New York, this is Bela. Sounds great.
That's it from over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week, Bela. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.